I want us to take a look at a word today, a word you may not be familiar with, a Latin word, but it has so much to do this morning, and it has so much to do every day with our understanding of how powerful and valid truth is, and how essential it is that we as Christians are empowered and respect and appreciate transcendent truth found in Scripture. The word veridiology is something we don't use an awful lot. It's a Latin word. It's a combination of the word word, truth, and the study of truth. That's where we get the word veritas. The definition is simply this. The study of truth, all right, the study of truth versus falsehood. The study of truth, particularly, though, in reference to the study of truth found in God's Word, and the study of truth as it relates to God's Word and how it relates to reality. Now, I'm a Christian today largely due to the fact that I was brought up in the church. I, I began to be taught. I was challenged to think from a Christian perspective at the earliest of ages. But as I got older, I began to ask the questions. All right, if I'm going to truly buy into this, I have to know it's real. How many have ever heard someone say the question or pose this this question, hey, are you in the Scriptures? Hey, you need to get in the Word. That's good. We ought to be in the words. What churches do, right? We study the Scriptures. Paul told Timothy, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of truth, ascertaining Scripture, applying it. But we live in a day and age where when it used to be when you told someone, hey, it's in the Word. Well, then I'll respect it. May not agree with it. May not live by it, but I respect it. God said it. We live in a day and age where people are actually calling into question the credibility of God and His Word. It's not, so it's not just good enough to say, hey, it's in the Bible, because the response from postmodernists is, so what? So what? So you want me to study God's Word. Why? I don't believe in God. I don't believe in intelligent design. I don't believe in transcendent truth. I don't believe there is such a thing as the hierarchy of truth. I don't believe in absolutes. I don't believe that Jesus existed. If He did, He just existed as a historical figure. And so what we used to say as we conveyed our Message to the unbeliever, hey, it's in the Word. Well, you got my attention. Now, the response we're getting from contemporary culture is, so, I'm not even sure I believe in the Bible. I'm not even sure I believe that there is a source of truth. So we have to come to terms today, all of us. The reason why I bring this material to you today is because I don't want to assume anything. And I've stopped assuming that just because people get dressed and go to a church service on Sunday morning and involve themselves in one or two activities or give a few dollars to the work that they actually believe what they believe is really real. I've come to the conclusion that we have to go back and help people resubstantiate their understanding of God and His truth, His Word, and the reality of heaven and hell. And the essentiality of having a biblical worldview. Not because you have a preacher tell you you should, or because your parents told you when you were a kid, you need to shape your life around Scripture. I want you to leave today going, I'm a Christian, I've embraced the biblical worldview, because it is the only worldview that makes sense. Now there's a difference between believing in something because you feel compelled to, and believing in objective truth because it can be defended. So we have to come to terms with this point today. It does no good to be men and women of the Scriptures, of the book, if we first fail to substantiate that the book is credible, that the Bible is infallible, and it really is God's spoken Word. I don't care what's in the book if the book is invalid. I don't care that it's in the Bible if the Bible is not 
accurate or checkered with false information and untruths. But, but, if today we are absolutely convinced that the truth claims in Scripture are accurate, the history is intact, and the information that God delicately placed in the book we call the Bible, the canon, is validated, then I have to at least take it seriously enough to ask this question. If it's that valid, if it's that true, if it's that accurate, if it's that infallible, then maybe, just maybe, the book's credible enough for me to subjugate my life and my lifestyle under its authority. If we believe that, then the transcendent truth claims have to be taken seriously. Now, I care that it's in the Scriptures. I care that it's in the Bible. But do I care enough to yield myself to the truth claims found in Scripture. So let's break the definition of veritiology down. The study of truth, particularly the study of God's character and His Word, and point three, as it relates to reality, the real world. All right, what does it mean to study truth? What does the term, the study of truth, mean? Well, you've heard me quote Robbie Zacharias many times because he does the best job of defining truth of anyone I've ever seen. Jeanette and I, two years ago, went... Uh, to a conference in Washington, D.C., or just outside D.C. He was speaking there. Uh, Dr. Oswald Guinness was speaking. Uh, Chuck Colson's daughter was on the ticket. It was an incredible, incredible uh, conference. But the thrust of the conference was the need for the church, in, in universal church, the evangelical church, to understand that truth is under attack in contemporary culture. The truth is under attack. We've spent so much time trying to decide what style of music we should do and, 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 and what, what should we take pews out and put chairs in. We got so diverted over these non-essential, superfluous things that we forgot to teach and train our people. What separates the church from every other entity in the world is the fact that we are people of truth. And we want the world to understand that they can embrace biblical truth. And if they do, they will have a life full of purpose and meaning and also hope of eternal life with Jesus Christ. That's the crux of our message. That's why Kissimmee Christian Church exists, is to convey biblical truth to every audience we come in contact with. Now, we're expecting a record number of students at KCA in the fall. We've got about six openings, and we'll have maxed out grades K through 6, which is great. And this year, every kid, as he walks into school, gets a bracelet. The bracelet simply reads, I want to be like Jesus. I want to be like Jesus. We're going to offer it to every parent next Sunday at 3 o'clock during orientation. Parents put this on. Teachers put this on. Principals put this on. Jim Book, you put it on. Every kid in the school gets to put it on. Be like Jesus. The reason why is if a child begins to act in an obstreperous fashion or a parent gets out of control, I know it's hard to believe that a parent could get out of whack, right? It's just not possible. Then we're going to stop the conversation and we're going to say, look at that bracelet. Jesus represents authority. Jesus represents all that is true and right. Your behavior right now conflicts with Jesus. Get your act together now. We're not going to talk about, well, we've done a psychological study, and according to Oxford University, children need to start acting like this. Listen, Jesus set the order for homes and schools and churches 2,000 years ago. Let's just go back to the... Supremacy of truth. Amen? Truth, defined this way. Write this down. Write this down. You will not hear a better definition of truth than this one. Truth is that which affirms propositionally the nature of reality as it is, not reality as it is perceived to be. 
personal interpretation is extracted. Biblical authority takes supreme position. Question again today. Do we here at Kissimmee Christian Church really believe that what we believe is really real? Do I believe that Jesus did live a perfect life? Do I truly believe that He is deity? That He was both God and man according to John 1? Do I truly believe that He died and rose again and is coming back for His kingdom, the church? Do I really believe that God is going to judge the hearts of every man and woman that's ever walked on this planet? Do I believe that the church was placed here as a spiritual hospital to save and reach the lost? Do I truly, truly believe that no one comes to the Father but through Jesus Christ? Do I truly believe that the Bible is accurate, infallible, and is the only guidepost for humanity? Do I really believe that what I believe is really real? 1 John 4, 6, we read these words, We are of God. We are of God, church. We are part of God's family. God is in us. He who knows God hears us. In other words, John says when the church gets out there, we are ambassadors of Christ. We are God's workmanship. When people see me, they need to see Jesus. Amen? When people hear me, they need to be here like, man, Jim, it's like Jesus is talking. I'm like, thank you very much. We are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God doesn't hear us. But this we know. John says, count on this. The spirit of truth. And there is a spirit of error. There are two cosmic battles going on in our world. Good versus evil. Right versus wrong. Holy versus unholy. Two narratives. Two messages being preached. One is false and the other is true. Now, the law of non-contradiction simply says that two opposing views cannot both be right. Because you've heard people say, well, I'm not a believer in God, but I believe that I can still get to heaven, blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, according to Scripture, either I'm wrong or you're wrong, but we both can't be right. The law of non-contradiction simply says two opposing views cannot both be right. Now, they can both be wrong. I was talking to a couple of friends the other day, and they're like, hey, I think the Bucks are going to go to the Super Bowl. The other guy goes, no, I think the Dolphins are going to the Super Bowl. And I realized both of you are wrong. Okay, so it's possible. Right. All of us poor saps still looking at the Dolphins preseason going, yeah, this is their year. This is their year. <laughs> I catch myself doing that. Like, hey, this is their year. Look at this. And it's like 6 and 10. Okay, so. But you can have two opposing views and they both be wrong. But you can't have two opposing views and they both be right. But you can have two opposing views. One can be right and one can be wrong. Now, I have, I've done some study. We did it in Bible college, Christian evidences, Christian apologetics. One thing that I began to delve into my, in my early years of ministry and even more since I've been here is I, I believe in Jesus. I believe in the credibility of scripture. But I, I said, God, help me articulate that because there are a lot of folks that I'm going to come in contact with, especially as I travel and as I get into churches and speak with Christians. Good people, good people. But they're like, Jim, I believe it, but I don't know that I can defend it. And I said, okay, Lord, this is what you want me to do, right? You want me to make sure that I get this information out in a way that people can understand it and ascertain it and can defend it. But please note that two contradictory statements cannot both be right. One can be wrong, one can be right. So the point is, 
If there's a cosmic battle going on, good versus evil, holy versus unholy, God versus Satan, both are, both can be wrong, but, but one can't be wrong and, or both can't be right. So I've decided based on good solid information and study, by the way, you don't have to put your brain on hold to be a Christian. You don't have to put solid intellectual evidence on hold to be a believer. In fact, I believe the more studious you are intellectually, the more you will naturally gravitate to supreme truth because it makes sense. Right? Okay. Some of you are still out there. like man. Some of you are still hung up on the whole dolphin thing. Relax. It's going to play out regardless of what we think. John 18.37. And I've used this illustration before, but it's, it, to me, it is one of the most... You know, we're doing a sermon series next Sunday called Tipping Point. We're on, in, in isolated incidences in Scripture, an entire life and community and culture was changed in, in a moment. The trajectory of one's life was changed in a solitary moment. There's tons of Scripture where an individual does something at a moment and it just like, wow, catches everybody's attention. Now, Jesus was going to the cross before time began. Genesis 3 tells us that. But there's a conversation that he has with Pilate just before he's ushered out of the hall that, to me, transforms the landscape of the world. It really helps us totally understand why Jesus came. Now, people say, well, I know Jesus came to heal. He did heal, but there was a greater reason for him coming. Well, he came to help the poor. Yeah, but there's a greater reason for him coming than just to help the poor. He even said, the poor you're always going to have with you. Do you realize that you can die financially destitute and spend eternity in heaven? Isn't that great? Isn't it great? Isn't it great to die, die on your, be on your deathbed and go, man, I don't have three nickels to rub together, but I'm a part of the family of God. I'm going to spend eternity with Jesus. Like, you are rich. You are rich. Okay, so Pilate and Jesus are having this conversation. And Pilate says to him in John 18, 37, are you a king? Jesus answered, you say rightly that I'm a king. And Jesus is like, look, let's get past that right now. Let me, because that seems the way everybody gets hung up on. Are you a king? Are you a king? She's like, yeah, I am, but but there's something else that I need to say before I get out of here because I want the world to know this. I want the world to be talking about this conversation, Pilate, long after this little ordeal is over. Pilate, for this cause I was born and for this cause I've come to the world. And Pilate's like, wow, you're going to summarize your entire purpose for being here in a final statement? Pilate's like, whoa. Whoa. Jesus is getting ready to say something so profound, it's like Satan stops in his tracks and is like, oh no, oh no. He's going to encapsulate his ministry, his reason for being here. He's going to put it all in one definitive sentence. And the gates of hell just, just stood still. The presses stopped. Satan's like, oh no, oh no. And I imagine the crowd just stopped. Jesus says, for this cause, Pilate, I was born. And for this reason, for this cause and purpose, I came into the world. That I should save the environment. That's safe. No. That could make people feel better about themselves. No. Pilate, this is the reason why I came here. This is why... I, I was born of a virgin 33 years ago. The reason why I've walked the shores of Galilee and Jerusalem and why I've taken these 12 men and honed them into being solid disciples, soon to be apostles. This is why I've spent three years teaching in synagogues and in homes and in streets. This is why I saved the woman caught in adultery. Why I healed the nobleman's son. This is why I fed 5,000 plus people. 
You ready, Pilate? Ready, world? But this is the reason why I came. So that I should bear witness to the truth. I should bear witness to the truth. I should give society and the world the true definition of what is right, what is holy, what is acceptable, what will get them to heaven. I am the source of all that is true and right and holy. Everyone who hears of the truth hears my voice. Jesus simply says, me and truth go hand in hand. We're synonymous. That's us today. Those who recognize where truth can be found and then hunt and apply those transcendent truths to their daily lives are those who have a quest for holiness and what is right and what is good and what is morally and absolutely sound. Notice Pilate then responds with the single most important question a mortal could ever ask. After Jesus explains why he came, Pilate looks at him and asks this question. And to me, society has been asking this question ever since. What is truth? Pilate asks the questions. Listen, for a politician to ask that kind of sound question gives me hope. Because that's the smartest thing that guy could ever ask or any of us could ever ask. Well, what is truth? What is truth? Do you realize that that is the crux of the problem in contemporary culture today? Everybody wants to know, well, what is truth? Where can I find truth? Or is there such a thing as absolute truth? Jesus says the final moments of His life, I have come to give the world a compass in which to live by. I've given them a compass in which to govern their speech and their attitude and the way they conduct themselves in the business world, the way they conduct themselves on a softball field, the way they conduct themselves at home, the way they conduct themselves in their marriage, the way they conduct themselves in the church body. I have come to set up the perimeters for their behavior. What is true, what is untrue, what is holy, what is not holy. I have come to establish truth. And then Pilate says, what is truth? I've used this illustration before. I'm going to use it again today because I think it coincides so well with the message. Fifty years ago, April 2017, Time Magazine developed an entire front cover to the question of truth. And it asked the question, is God dead? Remember that 50 years ago? Some of you are like, I wasn't born yet, but okay, that's fine. But you remember hearing about it, right? That was a, that was a pretty... Uh, pretty gutsy magazine front cover even back then is god dead is god dead now think about what was going on 50 years ago leading political and social figures were assassinated in the streets on television the vietnam war was escalating the hippie movement and drug movement and free sex movement was out of control uh you know political conventions were were disrupted there was so much mayhem and confusion and hatred and, and violence and racial tension in the United States of America. So, and I, th- I thought to myself, well, you know, it's probably from a secular's view, it kind of makes sense to ask the question, right? Because with all this going wrong, you have to ask yourself, God, if you're there, why are you letting it happen? But I want us to play it forward a little bit. What also was going on during the time that this article was written and during the time that America was going through a, a social and spiritual meltdown, okay? We had begun to question the authenticity of life. Abortion was making its way on the scene. Okay, even though Roe v. Wade had not actually taken place, questions about the, the, the sanctity of life were already in the bloodstream of America. 
Okay, the Bible and prayer were being ushered out of the school system. Okay, if God is represents transcendent truth, we take that out of the environment now. Everything's left up to subjectivity. Not objective standards, but subjectivity. And so while all of this mayhem is going on in contemporary society, on the streets of America, in the political scene, we've already determined that God, we really don't want you in the schools. We've, not, we've already determined that life doesn't have meaning as much as it did or should have. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, we're getting a taste of what the world looks like without God. In other words, you wanted me out of the picture, God says. This is what the world looks like without me. Wow. Fifty years later, to the day, Time Magazine comes up with another front cover. This time, the cover reads, Is truth dead? Is truth dead? Now, I don't know what took them 50 years to ask the question. Because if you've determined in your mind that God is not real, then it should have taken you 3.5 seconds to realize if God's, not de- if God's dead, there is no such thing as truth. Because God and truth do what? Go hand in hand. All right, I'm going to start this verse and you finish it. Ye shall know the... And truth will... Right. I can't be free. I can't enjoy the liberties that Christ came to give me if I do not first humble myself and embrace biblical authority and truth. If we as a society have determined that God is dead, it shouldn't take us 50 years to ask the question, is truth dead? Because God and truth are synonymous. God's Word and truth go hand in hand. The study of God, the study of truth, particularly the study of God's character and His Word. The study of God's character and His Word. You want to know who God is? What makes God happy or angry? You want to know the mysteries of God? You know His nature? Study His letters to humanity. Study the Scriptures, the Bible, the book, the Word. Dennis Prager, who is a conservative writer, says, quote, It was the Bible, not the Humanist Manifesto. It was the Scriptures, not the works of Camus, Kierkegaard, or Nietzsche. It was the Bible, not Karl Marx or John Dewey or Charles Darwin, that, sh- that, that, that shaped culture for the good. That's important. He goes on right there is nothing, not any religious or secular body of work that comes close to the Bible in forming the moral basis of Western civilization and therefore of nearly all moral progress in our world. It was this book that guided every one of the founding fathers of the United States, including, including those who described themselves as deists. It is the book that formed the foundational values of every major American university at one time. It's the book from which every morally great leader from Washington to Lincoln to Martin Luther King Jr. got his value system. In this book, we see that which was given to humanity, the Ten Commandments, the greatest moral code ever devised. It not only defined the essential moral rules for society, it announced that the creator of the universe stands behind them, demands them, and judges human compliance with them. Morris Book, my grandfather, wrote, The Bible is the oldest and most unique book in all of the library of literature. 
It deals with creation, records divine providence, and proclaims redemption through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let every man and woman in the church of Jesus Christ stand upon the promises of this divine revelation. And if we do that, we can obtain a panoramic view of the entire journey of the human family. It dares to give the history of man's earliest beginnings and dramatically prophesies what his last days will look like. There were over 40 different writers in different ages and widely separated sections of the known globe. Holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter 1.21 The first writer was Moses who inscribed God's will in an Arabian desert amid the thunderings of Mount Sinai. It was another one, the last writer, John the Apostle, who was known as the Son of Thunder, who penned the last words of this divine library 1,500 years later. One writer says the written word, the Bible, is the word, written word of God as a primary venue for our encounter with God Himself. Scripture is actually a window allowing us to see the nature and the character of Almighty God. The written word introduces us to Jesus, the living word of God, who put on flesh and entered the world of first century Palestine. The Bible speaks of the person, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Here we find stories and lessons about good and evil and our absolute need for God to transform us from the inside out. God discloses His purpose for us. He stated in the words of Romans 3.28, those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose, He also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of His Son. Within the Scriptures, we see the history of man. And isn't it interesting that as much as Satan and university professors have tried to discredit the authenticity and credibility of Scripture, every time they try to refute transcendent truths, all they do is add to the credibility of the book we call the Bible. That's no accident, friends. That's why I don't want you to walk aimlessly through this world I don't want you just to put the Bible on a shelf or on a coffee table or bring it out during a funeral. I want you to dig in it and I want you to understand that this book was carefully constructed by Almighty God because He knew that humanity was lost without a roadmap. This book is that roadmap for life, genuine liberty, and a healthy pursuit for happiness. I, I've thought through this many times and I've realized that the triune structure, the relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit screams order and discipline and submission. It points to the character and nature of God. John 10.30, John records these words of Jesus, I and my Father are one. So when I study the relationship of Jesus and I study the relationship of the Holy Spirit and I study the relationship that the Spirit and the Son have with God, I see a unified body. When I study the book of Ephesians and I see the order in the home that the husband is to be the head of the wife and the wife is to look to her husband for spiritual leadership and the husband is to love his wife like Jesus loves the church and like he loves himself. And then together as a team, we rear our children. I see the same stamp of unity and perfection in the triune as I do in the home. And then when I realize, according to the book of Ephesians, the order of authority in the church is Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. His word 
The apostles' doctrine sets the tone for our theology. Under Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, are our elders. And under the elders is a sanctified body working harmoniously. I see God's character and His handiwork not only developed in the deity, I see it in the home, and I see God's character developing in the church body. Can you imagine right now if every home in America would learn to subjugate themselves under the characteristics and nature of God and implement those characters within the home. Divorce would be cut in half. Unwanted children would not be heard of because there would be a home life and there would be sanctity and love and nurturing going on. I got a phone call the other day from an organization and they're desperately trying to reform and reevaluate the the gun laws in society. And I said to him, I said, first of all, you and I are on different pages, but I will tell you this, I respect your efforts. I say this because you think I'm so radical that I can't listen to an opposing view and actually entertain it. I can! I'm a likable guy! Most of the time. Really, I am. So he's bloviating on the phone about all this, and I said, hey, I want to say right now, we're on opposing views, but I do respect... I respect what you're trying to do. But I said, listen, listen to me, sir. I said, just so you know, we have over 20,000 gun laws right now in America. And I'm I'm not totally convinced that more is going to solve the problem. But I, I will tell you this. I just need to hear someone in your audience for once address the need for self control at some level. Because we can try the object, but if we don't change the narrative in the United States of America, we will still experience crime. I said the root of the problem is there is a missing dad in the home of the United States of America. And character and the nature of God is explicitly spelled out for the home in the book of Ephesians. It is time for the church to stop apologizing for being people of the word. The Bible is still the source of all that is right, true, and holy. It is still the remedy for what's ailing the United States of America. Period. I'm also announcing my run for governor beginning today. Just kidding. No, I'm not. Just kidding. That ain't happening. That is not happening. All right. What are we finding out? A lot of things today. We're finding out a lot. We're finding out now that that the rule of law cannot survive unless there's an unchanging transcendent standard by which we can measure human laws. See, otherwise the law becomes whatever lawmakers or rogue judges or hostile community deems it is. This can only result in the collapse of a free government, a free society. That's why I espouse the concept of the Christian truth based on biblical authority. Because it's the only real objective standard we have for, at our disposal to maintain order and civility in our nation and our world at large. So I'm, I'm going to kind of wrap it up here. But I want to show you an excerpt from a professor at Stanford University. His name is Dr. William Provine. Now, Dr. William Provine has become the spokesmodel for the existentialist thinkers in contemporary culture. He has made no bones about his belief that there is no standard of truth, that there is no God. And he uses a phrase that actually I had to play over a couple times to make sure I wasn't making it up. He said, I believe we can have a robust system of ethics in society without objective truth. 
And all I could think about was, is that why there's so much decay and corruption in the Department of Justice now? Because we don't have a system that works because we've tried to run ethics and values apart from supreme truth? Just a thought. But I want you to hear him. It's about a 60-second clip. But the reason why I'm playing him is because, again, he's the spokesmodel for this thinking. But he also represents, now listen carefully, He and, and it, it, he's not mean-spirited, he's just very direct, but I think he, he, in a nutshell, represents where the battle is and what the enemy is thinking and what the church needs to understand is happening. And, and this is the message we have to combat in love, but with compassion and energy. Compassion, energy. And I've said before, we lead with grace, but we've got to land with truth, friends. We lead with grace. John, we said it, the North American, beautifully. We lead with grace, but we've got to land. We've got to land the aircraft on truth. If we don't land with truth and all we do is preach grace, it's nothing more than Hallmark card theology. And, and our world's starving for something more than that. Why don't you listen to this uh, quote, this 60-second this uh, clip. Let's dim the lights a little bit and let's fire it up. No gods, no life after death, no ultimate foundation for ethics, no ultimate meaning in life and no human free will are all deeply connected to an an evolutionary perspective. You're here today and you're gone tomorrow. And that's all there is to it. Okay. Uh, How much hope, peace, joy in that man's life, huh? I want you to think right now as we get ready to close, I want you to think right now if what he said is true, if what he said is true, how much hope and purpose and direction do you and I have in our lives? There's no God. That means I was not divinely created. If there's no God, there's no Jesus. If there's no Jesus, there's no truth. If there's no truth, there's no direction and clarity in my life. Jim, if there's no clarity and purpose in my life, then what am I doing here? Why do you think suicide is skyrocketing around the world today? Right there. You really, sir, think we can have real values and ethics in government, in the school system, the universities, without a supreme authority to dictate how we should treat one another and react? And so we close today, and I remind you that as we study the character and nature of God, God did not want to live without humanity. God did not want to spend eternity without us. God did not want us to walk through life aimlessly with no direction or purpose or clarity. And so He instituted His Word, the source of all that is true and right and holy. And He sent Jesus to model that for us. And i got to tell you something, friends. That's why I'm a Christian. Because a Christian... And the Christian worldview and the Christian lifestyle is the only lifestyle and worldview that makes sense of this crippled, decayed world that I live in. Dr. Provine passed away a few years ago. The saddest part about him passing away was not the fact that he died physically, because we're all going to die physically, but that in a twinkling of an eye, he stood before the judge of the universe. An unbeliever. 